Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. drivers for many surgeons to pursue surgery is the idea that they can tangibly and physically cure someone of their disease. What is clear, however, once one starts surgical training is that often what we do as surgeons is guide someone through the end of their life and help them make the best choices for them. Dr. Melissa Red Hoffman is a dual board certified palliative care physician and trauma surgeon in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Dr. Hoffman spoke to us on this episode on her career her writing, and her passion, Palliative Surgical Care. Be sure to check out her own podcast, The Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. Links, as always, are in the show notes. I was wondering out of the gate if you could tell us about where you grew up and and what your training pathway was. Sure thing. I grew up in, uh, born in Brooklyn, raised in New Jersey. And uh, for most of my uh, life, I thought that I'd grow up and be a writer. And then... um, after my father died, I got very interested in social work. So I thought I'd be a social worker and eventually kind of found my way to medicine. But um, my initial path in medicine was actually as a naturopathic physician. So I spent five years studying naturopathic medicine and got a um, naturopathic doctorate degree. And during my training, I actually spent some time in India in a truly integrative hospital studying homeopathy. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. And that was the first time that I was in surgery. And, you know, in India, it was crazy. I was in Mumbai and it was in this crazy hospital um, where the OR was like 100 degrees, like a burn OR rather than uh, the ORs we're used to where it's freezing all the time. But we wore flip flops in the OR. And that was where I first saw my very first surgery. And I was really hooked. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, I think I've made a terrible mistake. I want to be a surgeon. And so I came back to the States. I, I finished naturopathic school. I actually worked as a medical assistant for two years for a surgeon and then kind of started on the journey of um, allopathic medical school and surgical residency and then more training in uh, surgical critical care and hospice and palliative medicine. So I've been a student for the majority of my adult life is the end of that story. Well, it's such a fantastic background. And and clearly, a lot of those influences still last to this day and, and, and make you the person that you are today. Uh, certainly, your your passion for writing still persists and it continues to permeate all the things that you do. And uh, I, I had the pleasure to read one of your pieces recently uh, in, in preparation for this, which was uh, the, the JAMA piece, which was actually for our listeners uh, voted as uh, the top 40 pieces in the last uh, w- over the last decade. Is that right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's a beautiful piece that's called The Sound of Silence When There Are No Words. Uh, and it's a moving piece where you talk about your father uh, being killed by a terrorist in Egypt. Can you talk about how that early experience shaped uh, your path through life? Sure, sure. It's funny. I was actually I was actually thinking of that piece the other day because I saw on Facebook um, that someone I, I know professionally suffered a horrible loss. And so many of the there were hundreds of comments and so many of the comments were there are no words. And that was something that really um, touched me when I was going through this experience, though. Um, I think at the beginning, there were no words that I had to express my feelings. So I was 19 years old. And, you know, like many 19 years old, I, 19 year old people, I was in a community that didn't necessarily know how to talk about their feelings. That's, you know, challenging when you're a teenager or a young adult. And so I just struggled so much with what I was feeling on the inside. And that really, um, for me, ended up um, I really ended up somaticizing a lot of my feelings. And that's really how I ended up going to naturopathic medical school was I was sick for years after my father died and found some relief in, through integrative medicine. Um, over the years, I really got interested in other people's suffering because I was noticing that my patients' families, so though I'm very tuned into my patients, I'm particularly tuned into my patients' families, were also like struggling as their family members were being sick or dying, they were struggling to find those words and they were struggling to find someone to listen to them. And so I really got interested in holding space for those feelings or holding space for that silence. Um, so that was certainly, um, I think my, I mean, my father's death just really, I think just one gave me a real appreciation for life, but really just gave me an appreciation for other people's sadness that I think I, I just never would have had. And I feel, I always feel so grateful. I, I'm one of those people that believes like, I mean, who knows why that happened? It was bad luck, bad timing, but there, there is a certain like madness to the universe as well. And I really do feel I feel blessed that I was able to take that experience and, and make the best out of it. It takes so much courage to tell that story and, and to write that story and send it to a, a journal like JAMA. Um, so I'm so impressed that you're, 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 you were able to do that and to express it so beautifully. And I, I wonder how much that sort of search for words and search for meaning has permeated what you do. Because, you know, in some senses, end of life care, which we're going to talk a lot about, today on the podcast and it's clearly your life's work is about kind of finding the words to communicate with people and to understand what gives them meaning in a really critical point in their life can you talk a little bit about that like how has your journey as a writer perhaps helped you uh, to become a better palliative care physician and maybe vice versa mm, that's a great question well I, I think my experience as a writer and and I noticed one of your questions that I thought was really interesting is how does that experience as a writer and that experience as a surgeon work as well? And I was reflecting on that. Sorry to steal your thunder if you were going to ask me that. But <laughs> I was reflecting on how when I write, like I, I love to just have silence and space in my head to let these ideas form. And so, you know, I'll have this idea and then over the next couple of days or a couple of weeks, it will slowly form in my head. And then finally I'll sit down and, and write it. 
And, um, you know, that just kind of takes time and space. And so I love that idea of time and space because time and space are really, I think, like so important in the practice of good, really of good medicine. I mean, of good palliative care, but really of good medicine. You know, the idea of sitting down um, where I work, um, there's like a new tower in our hospital and in every um, room, there's like a, a chair near the, that's just kind of like hooked up near the door that you can take. So there's always a chair and I always use it to just sit down with the patients and their families and just to be quiet and, and listen and to give them that time to think and breathe and cry and just be. So to me, the process of writing and the process of listening and the process of doctoring, they're in some ways all the same thing. The problem becomes, right, we're all so busy and there's never there's never enough time. And so you really have to be, or I have to be really um, thoughtful and mindful about how do I carve that out of a busy day. And, and you know, sometimes that means staying late or sometimes that means putting off those um, challenging visits until the end of the day when there's like, you know, surgeries are done and all the paperwork's done. And then I can just go and, and sit with someone for a half an hour and not feel um, rushed. That's a that's a beautiful description and probably something that that we should all strive towards. That you know every day, um, there's there's no question we have to put the patient. I think at the at the center of of what, of what we're doing always and and remember their experience. You know, and in some of those rushed moments, um, certainly matters. If we shift gears a little bit and 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 I'd love to hear your thoughts on the emergence of palliative care and surgery in general. Um, you know, we both do trauma surgery and I also do HPV surgery. And certainly the, the, there's not a day that goes by, I would say, despite discussing the process of dying or death that's just happened, where I wish I didn't have your skill set as a palliative care doc. Um, how how does, does one of those jobs inform the other and how do you use it on a, on a daily basis? Well, one, I think a lot of people don't realize that... Um, you know, the term palliative care was actually coined by a surgeon, a Canadian surgeon, no less, uh, Dr. Balfour Mont, who was a urologic oncologist. So I always say that um, surgeons have like deep palliative care roots. And I don't think that many of us realize that. I think the other thing about surgery is we are all, we know that our patients suffer, even our patients who do well. I think being in the hospital and undergoing surgery or undergoing a stay in the ICU, there is so much suffering inherent in that. And I'll often tell patients when the suffering is a means to an end, when it's going to lead to um, saving a life or improving a quality of life, that's great. The problem becomes when this suffering, we will, I'll say to what ends, you know, when the suffering is just never ending and the outcome is not what, um, the patient or the family would have hoped for, then what do we do about it? And so for me, you know, people have asked me, well, you know, don't you get confused? Like if you're wearing one hat or the other, but to me, um, a good, a good surgeon, you know, kind of stands by their patient, uh, in the preoperative period, in the operative period, obviously, and then that postoperative period, regardless of what it will bring, because that's kind of the covenant that we make with not only our patients, but with their families as well, that we are gonna stand with you. And so again, while it takes um, a great amount of time sometimes, and 
a great amount of emotional energy that sometimes it's hard to kind of summon at the end of a long day or especially at the end of a long day in the operating room. That's kind of the promise that I feel like we made with our patients. And, you know, while I think it's nice to have training in hospice and palliative medicine, I mean, there's 80 surgeons in the United States who are board certified in hospice and palliative medicine, but there are certainly hundreds of surgeons who I think do good primary palliative care with their patients because it's just very patient-centered work that I really feel like anyone can do with um, just a little bit of training. That's so interesting that there's 80 board certified uh, sort of double boarded folks that that's um, that's remarkable you know probably the rest of us do, maybe don't use you know you you folks as the 80 probably enough I mean I, I really think we could learn so much more from from all of you and, and one thing that I always say is like the best way to learn is that when you are consulting the palliative care team if you could just I mean, I'll tell my trainees this a lot, like go to the family meeting and watch what they do. Because for many years, I, I mean, my first um, introduction to palliative care was as a fourth year medical student at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. And then where I went to residency, we didn't have a palliative care team. And so the patients suffered greatly. And I did a lot of what would be considered primary palliative care, really just based on that month long training and some of the reading that I've done. So I, I feel like there's a lot to learn just from watching other um, skilled communicators lead a family meeting or have a goals of care discussion or have a discussion about code status. And, you know, is it, you might not be perfect, but I mean, none of us are perfect, so it doesn't matter. You know, I think if you, um, are coming from a good place. I, I have found families to be, uh, and patients, to be quite forgiving when your heart's in the right place. We sort of dive right into the, the topic, which is your, your life's passion and your, and your um, uh, clearly something that you're, you're getting good at and, and uh, have made uh, an objective of trying to spread it, which is palliative surgical care. Um, and you actually mentioned, you, and you have a great interview on your own podcast with Dr. Balfour-Mont uh, on the origins of palliative care. But for our listeners, how would you define palliative surgical care? And sure. what does that mean to you? So I'm going to read the um, definition. So, And we call it surgical palliative care. And so this is the definition from Dr. Jeffrey Dunn. So um, while, uh, you know, Dr. Balfour-Mont coined the term palliative care, and he's kind of, he's considered the father of um palliative care or palliative medicine in North America, I call Dr. Jeffrey Dunn the father of surgical palliative care because he really brought that idea of surgical palliative care to the masses starting in the late 1990s. And he defined surgical palliative care as the attention to suffering in all of its manifestations, so physical, emotional, psychosocial, and spiritual of the patient and the family under surgical care. So a very um, simple definition. And basically what it means to me is that we are, at, as surgical palliative care providers, we're not interested in just the physical manifestations of, of pain and suffering, but we're really tuned into our patients um, and their families as people. And we're there to minister them, to them kind of throughout their surgical journey. That's I I love that definition. To be honest, I'd I'd never heard it. You know, one one of the things you said that that took me back was, 
was how we model ourselves or how we actually deliver these conversations and engage in these conversations. And it's amazing as a surgical trainee, uh, to your point, you know, watching different folks, whether it's an HPV surgeon, whether it's a formal palliative care expert, uh, the different styles and the different deliveries with which um, you see not only from clinician to clinician, but also really almost from patient to patient. And my observation, I, I remember thinking very early on of some of these really good communicators was that, you know, as you'd expect now with so much experience, the the, their ability to, to shift gears, almost even the cadence of their language could change depending on who they were talking to. Like it, it's really quite an artistic and beautiful skill. Yeah, I will say, um, you know, my experience as a palliative care fellow, I, that was one of the most challenging years of my life. I mean, after years of surgical training and then doing a um, surgical critical care fellowship, I, I was just feeling challenged in such a different um in such a different way, the feedback was so much more personal and um, in some ways so finely tuned into really that communication style. Like we would have discussions on, because I have a very loud voice, especially when I'm talking about something I'm excited about, um, you know, how do we kind of lower the volume of our voice? One of my attendings used to say, you know, be the smallest person in the room. This is not about you at all. Um, you know, I've got a lot of feedback around. I tend to like, if I'm um, like my resting face is more like a resting smile face. That's just my face. And I remember one, some of the feedback I got was like, well, that smile is just like really inappropriate during this hard family meeting. You know, that's oh like, it's my face. Right. But it's, <laughs> But um, it did really make me, um, I, I just really appreciated all that it was just that, you know, I, I came in thinking like, oh, I'm so good at this. And then I realized, oh, my God, I have so much to learn. And, um, you know, I, I had several times where my program director, who was just so great, you know, he would really say, like, I'm just sensing like you're very surgical today, you know, like very rushed and just like, you know, how we are when we're rounding, like we're just kind of go, go, go. We got to get all this stuff done before 730. Um, and, and he would just kind of tell me to like slow it down. Like, you know, you don't have anywhere to go. You're not in a rush. And and so, you know, I, I would say today, I always think like if, if my attendings from palliative care saw me, you know, what would they think? Because really, I think I'm in many ways, I um, I still act very much like a surgeon because the majority of palliative care that I do is as a surgeon, you know, like my main job is a surgeon. And so I'm fitting this into my busy surgical day. Um, but I still always do sit down. I'm a big fan of touching, you know, I love to touch people's feet for some reason, but you know, like either holding onto their hands or their feet or sitting on their bed, like making some sort of um, human contact. Because I think, especially now in this last year, our patients are so lonely. You know, they're so starved for uh, can, physical yes. connection because they're not with their totally. Patients. Yeah, and so I think that's become even even more important. And then um, just really trying to get the family on the speakerphone, and so they can be a part of the conversation as well, and be a part of a lot of this just difficult decision making. Can you unpack for us a little bit more? What was different about uh, the the training that you did in palliative care, and what did that teach you that was different than what you already do? You know, um, you get the sense that a lot of surgeons now, I think, 
talk about palliative care and talk about end-of-life discussions. And, and really, that's something that's part of our zeitgeist. You know, I think of Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, and what that's done for the conversation, both inside medicine and surgery and, and outside of it. Do you think, uh, like, what were the things that you learned that you weren't expecting to learn or the things that we, you just found that we weren't doing well? And uh, what are the things that you think that surgeons in general could improve on? So one thing I learned is like how to shut the blank up. Uh, um, and, and so, you know, I think, I don't know if it's in a tool Gawande's book or I, I've read somewhere, you know, that like we doctors tend to interrupt their patients within the first like 16 seconds or something. Um, I really learned how to shut my mouth and just let the um, patients or families talk. Now that, is something that takes time, right? So again, as busy surgeons, we don't always have that time. As sometimes as a palliative care provider, you'll leave an hour for the meeting. And so you really do have time for patients and families to just really get it out. However long, you know, whether that's five minutes or seven minutes, you know, at some point they stop talking. But then I also learned the power of, of so not just like shutting the blank up, but that, that power of silence, because that silence can become very uncomfortable, but in that silence, then like the real emotions emerge. So just kind of sitting there and then eventually they'll start talking more or start crying or start filling that space. So if I jump in and fill that space, then I'm, I'm really denying the patient or the family that opportunity to go deeper. So that was something that I um, hadn't really thought a lot about. You know, we think about like listening and active listening, but really just like sitting in that deep, oftentimes very uncomfortable and awkward silence to see what comes up. And it is like, um, it's incredible what kind of bubbles up um, on the surface for people. And then just, I think I, I just learned to ask a lot of good questions that, um, tend to work for everybody, you know, uh, or in many situations. So one of the questions I love to ask is, you know, if your family member was in this meeting with us right now, rather than like intubated and sedated in the ICU, what would they say? And so like inviting that that patient's and their spirit into the room, even if they're intubated and sedated in the ICU, it really is incredible because people will just like shout out, oh, they'd say like, you know, get this off of me or get me the hell out of here. Like it really um, gives a, a voice to that person. And so like, that's one of the, the tricks that I use to like get, you know, families get so concerned that I'm not making the right decision. Well, really, you know, we're inviting you to please speak on behalf of your loved one what would they say if they were here and sometimes the families don't want to hear what they would say because the loved one would sometimes say i don't want to do this and the family member wants them to keep moving because of course they're human and they don't want to they don't want to lose their loved one they don't want their loved one to die but it's um it, it's just i love that question i just get the most remarkable answers you know one of the things that i reflected on after reading being mortal and, and actually atul gawande came to uh, our class while I was doing my MPH in Boston. And one of the things, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's a fantastic guy and just a riveting person to listen to. But one of the things that I, I have wondered about, there, there are a couple of things. You know, one is in, in true Gawande fashion, you came up with a checklist. And so uh, I'm curious if you have a similar checklist that you uh, 
use when you're actually trying to approach the situation or is it much more fluid or uh, organic and you kind of try to tailor it as Dr. Ball said, tailor it to the, to the person that you're speaking with? I, I, I think another thing I learned in my palliative care fellowship was really not to have an agenda. So if you're going into a meeting and you're like, I got to get a code status. I mean, a lot of times that's like doomed to fail. You know what I mean? Because there's many people who don't want to talk about that right now. And it's, you know, certainly there's some times where it's, um, you know, say a sick emergency general surgery patient in the middle of the night that has to, has peritonitis and has to go to the operating room. I mean, that you kind of, I feel obligated and I, I want to have that discussion right away. But, you know, when we have time, if someone's like a trauma patient, the ICU, you know, they're going to have this prolonged stay and you can just kind of tell it's not going to end well, say, you know, I don't always have to get a code status on the first, on the first go around. So kind of, for me, I try not to have an agenda and I can tell, I, I can like, it's not like I always can like manage that because the, I am thinking recently I was in the trauma bay and like I had such an agenda not only did I want a coach status like I wanted this family to make this person a do not resuscitate I mean like I really had strong feelings but like it's not you know it's not about me and I, I could tell that I was uh, kind of I was pushing it a little bit and I could tell that the the family member is trying to was really just kind of shutting down and I honestly don't blame them. I mean, what do we get from that? Then we're never going to revisit the discussion. If, if we, if I go in without an agenda, I bring it up, you know, they, they shut me down. They don't want to talk about it right now. Well, I didn't burn any bridges. And then the, a day later, I can just kind of come back and talk some more and maybe revisit it, say, remember what we talked about. And so I, I really don't have, um, I really don't have a, a checklist. I have certain questions that I always ask because I think they help me kind of get at who is this patient. I love asking, you know, tell me about the last six months of, of so-and-so's life. What was it like? Because it's very easy for someone to say, oh, you know, mom was doing fine. Well, you know, what, what have the last six months been like? Tell me what a, a typical day's been like. And then you realize you know, mom hadn't gotten out of bed in, in weeks. Yeah, she's quote unquote fine, but she's really not doing anything at all. And so that kind of helps us establish like a baseline functional status, which I think is always good for, um, you know, sometimes we're, we're just kind of blind to our own suffering and to the suffering of, of those around us. So I think it's good to kind of have people say that and then and then reflect it back to them. Well, this is where mom is. And I mean, the reality is, you know, we're probably never going to get her back to here. And after a long, prolonged hospitalization or a surgery or a trauma, I mean, the likelihood of even getting to 75% of that is sometimes, you know, highly unlikely. So what would mom think of that? And, but again, no, I don't have a, I don't have a checklist. Yeah. I mean, to me, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I, I have often struggled with, and, and Dr. Ball and I have had lots of discussions about this, is that, you know, in some ways, what we're trying to do with these end of life discussions and, and palliative care is really have people confront a reality that we're not used to thinking about. And this is why this is why I, th I brought up the, your essay right at the beginning is because I do think, you know, in some ways having to deal with, uh, you know, your own mortality or a close family member's mortality makes you think about this issue differently. But, you know, one of, one of the things that's so challenging about this is that we have to have this discussion about something that nobody wants to talk about and none of us are really in touch with it's not something that we we think about you know you know if you if you're to talk about 
you know, you're at your end of life when you're healthy, people say, oh, well, that's kind of a morbid discussion. Uh, even though uh, it, it's not really, it's it's sort of a way of embracing life in some ways and, and a way of, of thinking and, and enjoying your own life to the fullest possible, you know, even if you're healthy. And it becomes even more important when you're when you're really in a difficult situation. So I'm I'm curious how how your experience has been with trying to, in some ways, combat a cultural challenge, uh, which is sort of endemic in in the Western world and in modern reality. So so one thing that I do is um, and I talked about this a little bit in my essay, but I think like the power of sharing stories is is like pretty incredible. So. You know, with my older patients, I'll always ask, are you married? And a lot of them are widowed. And so then I'll say, oh, how long were you married for? How old was your wife when she died? You know, was she sick? Like, I'll really inquire about the, that death. I mean, the re I always tell my patients, like, everyone has an expiration date. I mean, we're all going there. And so I don't, I just don't shy away from it. Because people will often say, you know, or, or, I have... It is amazing when when people are in the hospital. I don't know. I'm sure you guys have noticed this too, but it's like it brings up everyone's other deaths. You know, so many family members will be like crying about, oh, my brother died last year, or my mother died 15 years ago. Like it brings up all their stuff, and instead of ignoring it, I'll kind of dig into it a little bit. Well, oh my God, how old was your brother? What did he die from? Like, do, you know, do you? I'll often ask, like, do you dream about him? So kind of just like normalizing death in gen like in general and then you know it's hard to talk to a patient especially a sick patient that you know is um you know you get that sense right we all have that doctor sense that um these this patient really may die it's hard to ask a patient um how they're feeling when they're so close to death. I have found that the majority of people, when you ask them, they have been thinking about their mortality. They might not be talking about it. They might not have like formed a lot of coherent thoughts. They might not have like the most graceful words, but you know, people know when time is short, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's like the reality is though, that we don't like hold any space for people to even talk about it. So, you know, when someone's sick, it's like, so many families have said to me, God, I wish I had talked to mom about this, but I didn't want to hurt her feelings or I didn't want to make her anxious. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm at mom's bedside and like, you know, the majority, not all of them. I mean, sometimes it's challenging when people are not really realizing how close they are to death, but the majority of people know, and yet we don't really invite them or hold space to talk about it. So I try to hold a lot of space and ask like very honest questions. Like, do you feel scared or what do you think happens? Or when I'm at um, a patient's bedside, you know, say when we're doing a, like a terminal extubation, I always ask the families like, who's waiting for them on the other side, you know, to kind of like conjure up all the spirits in the room. And that is also a great question because then they start talking about all their dead family members and it brings a lot of joy and like love into the room and really could feel all these spirits like just waiting to invite this patient to the, it sounds a little woo-woo, but I really do believe that like, you know, just waiting to welcome this patient. I always tell our, our families like, you know, they're just going out with a ton of love and they're just going to be met with a ton of love. And so I, I just try to keep talking. Like I just, and that's where I have a hard time being quiet sometimes, but I just try to keep moving the conversation, keep normalizing everything. Like, yes, this person is dying. Yes, you're dying. Yes, we need to talk about this. And 
yes, all these other people have died and we're just going to keep telling these stories and keep conjuring up these memories and keep kind of calling on our ancestors to help us. Um, and, and to me, I, I think that brings people a lot of peace. I mean, I get lovely feedback from families that they, they just feel like, okay, this is the best way, you know, no one's happy about how, what happened, but this is the best way that it could have happened. I, th I think I'm running out of ink. I'm, I'm writing all of these tricks and tips down that you're giving us in our audience that can't thank you enough. Like uh, oh, un un you. unbelievable. Yeah, it's great. And well, I, one of the things I, I just want to oh, say, like, not, just like to not be scared. Like I, I realized mm -hmm. early on, like the patients are looking to us as physicians to set the stage. You know, I remember when I was like a second year resident, I just totally Oh, like, I still remember this man. I just totally connected with this man who had, you know, children like my age or a little younger. I think actually he was like my, his children were a little younger and he was like my dad's age when he died. So I was like very connected to this man. And he, I was telling him he had like stage four cancer. And I said, like, how are you doing or how are you feeling? And he's like, well, I don't know. Like, I've never gone through this before, you know? And I realized like, our patients are really looking at us to be the guides, you know, and you know, how many times have you been at the bedside of someone like who's been dying and the family members are just standing there. Like they don't know that they can touch their family members. I'm like, come on, gather around. Let's like love on this person and touch them and hug them and kiss them and put on some music. Like they just, they just don't know. They don't know. Cause they've maybe never done it before. And so it's really, it's up to us to normalize all that and to really, set the stage and that's really the beginning of legacy right because the patient's going to die regardless but we're really in charge of how the family is going to that's the beginning of their processing of death and we can really help them have um kind of a, a good way forward and hopefully avoid this complicated grief that a lot of us uh unfortunately struggle with Oh, that's that's beautifully and poetically said, and you know it, it makes me reflect on on my own personal experience, which you know j just briefly was that my dad died uh, quite young when I was uh, in Atlanta training as a fellow, and it was interesting because he was a an ex professional hockey player who came from a farm and was a very salt to the earth kind of dude, and I would have bet you know a million dollars times you know, infinitely, essentially, that when his day came, he would have died very much like a salt of the earth guy, sort of saying, oh, well, this is this is part of life. Here we go. But he didn't. He actually, he was, you know, it happened very quickly over a couple of months unexpectedly, but he, he railed against it. He was not happy. He felt he was too young and, and all the other things that I'm sure you see every day. Um, but that for me, that was a really good lesson to, to what you're talking about with, with your example. You, you, we don't know how we would actually behave until we're in those situations. And we shouldn't make the assumption or project in any way from our experiences, whether it's job-based or whether it's just life-based, um, that we understand without asking some of these questions. Right. Very well said. The, the other thing I wanted to, to sort of dig down in, in, in with you is about... Just over a decade ago, we published a, a paper that looked at, I think it surveyed just over 500 clinicians in, in terms of how they look at end-of-life care in severely injured patients. And it was a, an international study, uh, all five continents, all different types of trauma-related physicians. And it's interesting because that, that, that manuscript, that project was spurred by a bunch of us as Canadians 
entering the U.S. over about a five-year period doing trauma and critical care fellowships and sensing a palpable difference in terms of how these two different cultures and countries looked at end-of-life care. And I'm I'm curious what your what your thoughts are on on you know Mira kind of touched on it a little bit there, but culture and and country and religion sort of differences globally. And I, probably the most high profile, maybe the most high profile example recently in in this country in Canada has to do with medical assisted uh, uh, death and dying. Um, you know that there's a, now a federal law that that says we have to engage in this and and have structures and systems in place to to uh, not necessarily promote it, but to, but to do it with some sort of, you know, elegance and, and hopefully grace. Um, I was curious what, what your thoughts are on all of that. Well, so I just want to clarify, that's for the entire country that you guys have that? Yeah, you betcha. It's a, it's a federal law. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, in the United States, I think there's about eight states where um, uh, physician-assisted suicide is, is currently legal. Um, you know, I think that uh, religion certainly plays a great role in um, a lot of uh, decisions that are made in, in this country. And so, and I certainly see it in the South. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, and, and I'm Jewish, so I can't really even speak to it, but I, I just feel like there's a lot of religious beliefs that certainly rail against uh, physician-assisted suicide the same way that they would um, rail against some uh, abortion, say. Um, but what I have found is that faith kind of works both ways, like because they're the same people who really have this strong faith in, in God and will pray for a miracle. I, I find that um, a lot of people have a, just a lot of comfort in, in um, their religion and God and feel like they know where their loved one is going. And so I tend to really try to um, support that idea and promote it. You know, um, I have found that, say, for me, working in the South now, my language around death and dying has really, I've just kind of adopted the language that's around me. And to me, it still feels you know, it's not the language I was brought up with in New Jersey. It's not the language I would speak on the West Coast. But, um, it, you know, to me, it's all the same. Like, I really feel like we're all, you know, whoever you're praying to, I mean, it's all, we're all, we're all looking for that same sense of, of comfort and support. And so I find myself kind of using that language of, of um, say, like Southern Baptist and that sort of thing. That's what a lot of our patients are down there and talking a, a lot about God in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have talked about before. Um, and, and just kind of reminding our families that, because this is what they believe, and I love this idea too, is that these patients will die and be fully healed. And so I think that's a great comfort for people. And so I echo it all the time. You know, your loved one is not going to suffer anymore. They're going to be fully healed. I say all the time that... Um, you know, it's us who's left behind that's going to be suffering. They're going to just go off into this eternal grace, basically. Um, so that's how I, I've kind of found um, my way of that. That's how I've just kind of dealt with being in a, say, in an environment that's not really native to me, but I still manage to make it work. That's uh, 
I think a beautiful reflection on on this whole process and the and the real challenges of of dealing with different cultures. I did want to touch briefly on your own podcast, and I'm curious what made you want to start that uh, podcast in particular, um, and what have you sort of learned along the way from doing it? Uh, you know, I'm curious what feedback people have given you and and talked to you about and and things like that. Sure. So, a little over a year ago, at the um, in October 2019, yes, at the um, American College of Surgeons Clinical Congress, the uh, Committee on Surgical Palliative Care was meeting and we were talking about how we really had no, the, the whole movement of surgical palliative care really didn't have any sort of um, online or social media presence. And so I initially started the Twitter account at Surge Pal Care. And then from that just started daydreaming about, okay, well, how do I um, you know, I reflected a lot about when I started becoming interested in palliative care as a um, young surgical trainee, I really didn't have anywhere to turn. The American College of Surgeons had one online um, PDF that is called um, Surgical Palliative Care Resonance Guide that was co-edited by Dr. Dunn. And that kind of became my Bible. I mean, that was like the one thing that I could use. But, and I certainly knew names like Dr. Jeffrey Dunn and Dr. Ann Mosenthal and Dr. Zara Cooper, but didn't necessarily feel empowered at that time to be reaching out to them. And, and so I felt like, well, how do we, how do we make it so that this next generation of surgeons that, like you said, I think, um, you know, I think more and more people and more and more surgeons are starting to consider talking about death and dying and suffering as, as part of their practice. And so how do I support this next generation of surgeons coming up? And, you know, like many people, I love listening to podcasts. And I also felt very strongly, Dr. Dunn has been a great, um, he's like, like our historian, like he's written a lot about the history of surgical palliative care. But I was like, man, a lot of these people are old, you know, like Dr. Mont is in his 80s. Um, and if we don't record these people, they're going to die. And we're going to be so sad that we don't have their stories um, so that we can look back on them. And so I just felt really motivated, like this needs to happen. And I had the time and the energy. And so I'm like, this is going to happen now. You know, it's very um, blessed to have Dr. Uh, Balfour Mon as my first guest. I mean, I don't think you can get any better. And then Dr. Jeffrey Dunn, really, um, he's become a great mentor and friend of mine. And, you know, his Rolodex is like way, it's way deep. And so he's basically introduced me to um, a lot of people that I, I never would have been able to contact who agreed to be on the podcast. And then I kind of, I got some advice from the folks who run um, the Jerry Powell podcast um, and they kind of told me, you know, cast a wide net, like, don't just focus on surgeons and on physicians. And so then I started saying, oh, right, well, I need to have some nurses on and some, I just interviewed a pharmacist that hasn't come out yet. And started looking at other people who aren't surgeons, like someone like uh, Diane Meyer or, uh, Ira Bayak, who are just, um, giants in the field of palliative care, but have really, I mean, Dr. Bayak, he really supported the surgical palliative care movement from the very beginning back in the late nineties. And so getting to talk to them and hearing what they thought surgeons brought to the field and also how surgeons might improve their communication. So I thought that was just really fascinating to get that input from them. Do you ever get the sense that now surgeons, because you're making them sort of, sort of aware that 
there are ways of doing this better. Do you get the sense sometimes that surgeons maybe are, are more scared to do their own sort of end of life care and are now referring everything to the, to the palliative care team um, and instead of really engaging with that uh, themselves. And, and certainly, you know, one of the challenges, as you pointed out, is that we, we really don't have time. And so I'm curious, you know, what has been the feedback from surgeons listening to this? Has it been that, you know, you've made me a lot better, I'm going to try and do this more myself? Or is it that, you know, maybe I'm not the right person to do this? And, and sort of what, what are your thoughts on that? So I think the feedback is mixed. Part of it depends on what field of surgery someone is in. So when I think of an acute care surgeon like myself, you know, splitting time between the ICU and trauma floor and emergency general surgery, you know, when I'm in the ICU, I mean, that kind of the whole, the general vibe of the ICU and kind of the rhythm of the ICU that you're really in the ICU and, and not often in the operating room, it really lends itself to doing a lot of your own palliative care. And so there I try to do a lot of it. However, even for myself, even if I might want to, there are certain times when you can't. So one is, you know, if your service is overflowing, you just can't. Two, um, I'm always mindful of who's following me in the ICU because if I'm starting something that I sense is going to last like weeks rather than days, I will get the palliative care team involved because that continuity of care is really hard. Um, you know, I have several partners who are very, very skilled at palliative care and, and several who are like, they're just not as interested. And so, you know, I really look to see who's coming next and if they're going to want to continue to engage on that level. And then lastly, when, we do our own primary palliative care, we have to remember that, you know, one of the, um, I think, selling points about palliative care is that you, it's an interdisciplinary team, right? So you have the physician, you'll have a nurse, you'll have an advanced uh, practice provider, maybe you'll have a licensed clinical social worker, you can have a chaplain, if you're lucky, you'll have a pharmacist. Well, when I'm doing my own palliative care, you only have me. So it really depends on how much support the patient and the family and then the nurse needs and i've talked about this before there have been several cases i there's several cases that i'm thinking of where we've had young people with high spinal cord injuries and like i myself am so overwhelmed by the the suffering that uh the patient and the family are going through like i find myself to be not very effective yet in those situations, but then the nurse is suffering and the family suffering. And there's just no way that one person can address all that suffering. And so for those kind of challenging cases, I will get the palliative care team involved because they have a little more uh, of the resources that are needed to take care of the family, to take care of the nurse, and of course, to take care of the patient. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of emotional uh, burden that you have to take on if if you're suddenly the point person uh, and I'm sure you've become that for your colleagues both in your your own institution and and nationally you know it, it is not easy necessarily to keep on doing that day in and day out and so how do you support yourself in, in that work yeah so one I'm just super mindful about what my um, like how full my bucket feels basically and on the days where it just doesn't feel full and I might have some stuff going on in my own life then I'll just consult the palliative care team and I um, am very lucky I work at the hospital where I did my palliative care fellowship so I feel very comfortable just saying like I'm just uh, I'm just going through it today or I'm just like 
overwhelmed, uh, either professionally or personally. And I just like, I'm so sorry I have to consult you, but I, I just like, I can't do this today. You know, I'm very honest. Um, and then I feel, you know, I'm young in my career, but older in years. And I have like, now it feels like a lifetime, but you know, over two decades of like, um, good self-care that's just like programmed into me. So, you know, thankfully I, know how to sleep well. I know how to drink a lot of water. I know how to eat well. I know how to move my body almost every day. And um, so I know how to like maintain a really good um, equilibrium. And then I think, um, you know, I'm not the type of person or surgeon that just pretends that I know everything. I'm very, I have no poker face. I'm very free with my emotions and I just don't try to hide what I'm feeling. And so I don't waste a lot of energy trying to convince myself or you that I'm okay. Like if I'm going through something, I just kind of talk about it and then, you know, then it's out and I don't have to deal with it. And so, um, not, not holding on to that idea of what a physician or a surgeon is like supposed to look like, I think gives me a nice sense of freedom to just kind of, um, move through my day and move through my, uh, life with a little more like emotional freedom. I hope we can all aspire to have that level of insight because it's certainly not easy and uh, sometimes it takes a moment for you to kind of step back and say whoa what's what's going on what what do you say to the people who perhaps uh, don't recognize or don't feel that that is an important skill for them to have in terms of end-of-life care and and palliative surgical care uh, you know uh, we ha we all know those people who are a bit brusque and and perhaps don't think that that this is you know, what they need to be spending their time doing. And, you know, their time is better spent, better spent operating and, and curing people that they can cure. So how do you approach that colleague or that um, surgeon who, who maybe doesn't see the value the same way that you do? Well, I, I think that everyone has their own skill set. Like, I mean, I'm meant to do this, but there I can think of people who are like just meant to be in the OR for like 15 hours a day and that's probably the person I'd want operating on me if I had pancreatic cancer. So what I would just say to them is just, you know, we all need as an, as adults to recognize our strengths and our weaknesses. And if that, you know, if communication is um, your quote unquote weakness, or it, if this kind of goal setting and end of life discussion is not really what you want to do, then can you please just recognize it and then consult the palliative care team? Because what stinks is these people who are not really great communicators, um, but who then won't counsel the palliative care team. And so the patient's suffering and they have no one to talk to. But I'm, I mean, there's certainly people who are either too busy or just not engaged on, on that particular level. And I think that that's fine. But then I strongly suggest like, well, I know, and, and it's not about saying, I know you're not good at this. It's more like, I know you're super busy and your plate super full. Do you mind if we just consult palliative care on this patient? Because I really feel like they need that extra layer of support and, and kind of just leave it at that. That's a beautiful way to interact with that scenario. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I should say we, we're not certainly unique in, in Calgary, but Boy, oh boy, we have uh, some pretty great relationships with our palliative care folks, both on the oncology side as well as on the trauma side, and we're we're grateful. Yeah, palliative care teams are amazing, and and you know, and that does speak to the other thing about palliative care teams. The 
you know, there's not enough palliative care physicians in the world. I mean, we know that when you look at the fellowship training spots every year. And so we do have to remember that they are a limited resource. So I do think that, mm -hmm. yes, while I can forgive that um, surgeon who is, you know, really meant to just be in the operating room um, and doesn't want to engage, at the same time, consulting someone like Consulting palliative care, like yeah. established code status, is not appropriate. No, you are operating on the person. You establish the code status. You know, now if yeah. it gets hectic and they have like all these um, unforeseen complications and all that, I, I of course, a hundred percent understand consulting palliative care. But we just have to remember that uh, this team is a is a very very limited resource, and we have to use them wisely. And I think that we've been seeing that so much in the last year throughout the world that like um, there's only so much of the palliative care team to go around with all this um, death and suffering that happening and so we all kind of have to step up and you know a lot of times it's it doesn't have to be this long drawn out discussion like a lot of times again as I was saying people kind of know what's going on in their bodies if we could hold a little space and a little time for them to just talk like a lot of times people can really tell you what what they need um, if we just ask some of those very pointed questions yeah, that's again be beautifully said. You know, there's there's no question. You're exactly right that nobody should show up in an operating room for a Klatskin resection or a Whipple without having had that discussion in a yes. in a in a tempered, calm, you know, quite potentially beautiful way uh, in clinic before they they arrive for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I guess most importantly, we can't thank you enough for for being on the podcast today. You're amazing. What you contribute is amazing, and you're changing the world clearly of surgery and beyond um, by doing what you do. So I, I hope you never stop. The, the last question I, we always ask uh, almost everybody is, um, if you were to go backwards in time and, and give your younger self maybe some, some advice that the experienced sage uh, self knows now, what, what would that be? What, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> oh, I'd say, girl, you're enough. Uh, keep shining bright, keep showing up. I used to have a hard time showing up, just like show up. That's where the magic happens. Um, I have found that in my life so much, like so much magic has happened for me in the last couple of years. Cause I've just shown up. I've just invited myself to the table. And then once you're there, people just assume you're supposed to be there. <laughs> and then I, I wish I, I wish I knew that when I was younger, I was always just so anxious, didn't want to step on toes, felt shy, and you just got to push through it, you know, so I would, I think that's what I'd say. And then uh, there used to be a lot of angst around me in residency wearing glitter eyeshadow, which I never stopped wearing. So I tell myself, it's okay to wear glitter eyeshadow, you're going to be just fine. <laughs> You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thanks again.